right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the FearCast. This is the podcast dedicated to OCD, anxiety, anxiety spectrum disorders, and getting your life back. I'm your host, Kevin Foss, and I am a licensed clinician specializing in OCD and anxiety disorders. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode. So, for those of you who are new, FearCast is a, is a question and answer based podcast. You can send me an audio question over at, uh, or a text question, over at FearCast Podcast at, over at Instagram. You can send me the audio question by just sending me a DM and, and pressing the audio or the uh, microphone button. You can also just go over to FearCastPodcast.com and send me an email that way by pressing on the submit a question link. If you record your voice and, and uh, send, me the, uh, send me the audio at questions at FearCast Podcast, you can send me the shared Google Drive to, or send the shared Google link uh, at fearcastpodcast.com. Um, I'll get that. And audio questions will go to the top of the list. And today's question is going to be an audio question. Now, I got this question um, maybe about a month ago, but um, I, what I wanted to do is get a, a, a expert in on this, someone who specializes in, in this specific uh, information, this specific realm of the OCD world, just to try to get one, a little bit more more information about something we haven't really talked about before in the on the podcast, but also to get uh, this person's um, uh, thoughts, opinions, guidance, uh, and just you know, a, a way to orient our mind and when we're, when we're thinking about approaching this, or you know, some advice for the person who sent in the question about what they can do. Um, uh, what they can do and what they can think about with their therapist. So I'll tell a little bit about uh, Dr. Caitlin Pinciotti. Um, but um, uh, before I give the, her little bio, uh, I do want to mention, so in the episode, we're going to talk about um, a research study she did. Um, it's a, a, a it's a national OCD survey, and it's a brief 10-minute anonymous survey. Uh, I'm going to put a link to that. If you want to be a part of that, uh, you can uh, find the, ep- the information at the episode page. Page at Fearcast Podcast, and I believe this will be episode 163. No, excuse me, 164. I'm making that mistake, and I'm checking it as we speak, which is why it sounds really awkward. 164. It'll be 164. So go check that out. Um, but I'll also include some of that information on the uh, corresponding post over at Fearcast. Uh, um, uh, excuse me, over at Instagram. So um, so let me just tell you a little bit about Dr. Caitlin Pinciotti, and then we'll jump into this episode talking about trauma-informed treatment for OCD. So Dr. Caitlin Pinciotti is a licensed clinical psychologist and associate professor in the manager department of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Baylor College of Medicine. Dr. Pinciotti's research focuses on the assessment, conceptualization, and treatment of OCD, trauma, and PTSD. She serves as the co-chair of the IOCDF Trauma and PTSD in OCD Special Interest Group and the chair of the Special Interest Group's Science and Research Committee. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Dr. Caitlin Pinciotti. All right, Dr. Caitlin Pinciotti, thank you so much for joining us today on the FearCast. Well, you're welcome. I'm glad to be here. Wow, man, I'm super excited to chat about everyone's favorite subject, 
trauma and trauma-informed therapy for OCD or trauma-informed therapy as it relates to OCD or any mixture of those. So um, you are an expert on this, You uh, and that's I, I appreciate you taking your time to come and join us on the podcast to talk about what this looks like and how um, folks who are out there who are struggling can kind of know that there is a treatment out there for you and that there is a consideration and there is a way to get through both of these things. So um, we'll, I'll, I'll let you talk about that in just a moment, and then we're going to play a call from a listener and talk about this in more detail. For uh, This is the foreshadowing for all the listeners. Uh, to, we're we're going to get there. So anyways, thank you so much for joining us. Yes, thank you. I'm excited. There's a lot to, to dive into. A lot to dive. Well, why why don't we start off with the start off with the basics? So, what is trauma informed treatment? Yeah, that's a great question. So, so trauma informed treatment um, on a really broad scale is treatment that considers the impact of trauma, um, both in terms of the impact on, on the, the person who's who's presenting to therapy, um, the experiences they've had, how they've how they've um, uh, been impacted by those experiences, as well as how to interact with people in the moment to be really thoughtful and and kind of conscientious of these experiences. Um, there are some specifics about how we could apply this trauma informed approach uh, to ERP. That, that hopefully we can chat about too, but kind of on a, on a broad scale, it's, it's sort of just um, a big word for just being really mindful of the experiences that people bring into the therapy room with them. Okay. So I suppose, why don't we jump right into that then? So, you know, if we're, if we're taking into account somebody's trauma, um, how, how does that, I guess, a, a silly question, why is that important? Why is it important to take someone's trauma into account when treating when treating OCD, right? If OCD is to be treated as an anxiety disorder using CBT, ERP, or whatever version that somewhere in the future we're arguing about is the main way of treatment, um, if, if that's the way to do it, and if OCD and trauma are two separate things, why would we want to take that into account? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think for one thing, you know, we, we're all whole and complete people, right? And we can't really separate out here's my OCD, can you treat my OCD and ignore kind of all these other facets about who I am and the experiences I've had and other things that I'm struggling with. Um, and so in general, I think it's, it's, a, it's a good approach um, because it really uh, helps, we see, helps us see kind of the, the whole of someone. Um, but as it specifically relates to OCD, um, I would argue that it's, it's really important because more and more we're starting to recognize just how often people who, who have OCD have experienced trauma, and more importantly, how many of those people feel like trauma has in some way impacted their OCD. Um, and so this is where a lot of the research that I've done um, has been focused on. Um, and and if, if you don't mind me throwing out some numbers uh, in case people are into that. Go for um, it. You know, what we found uh, in, in one sample of people who had really severe OCD, uh, 40% of them felt that their OCD was directly caused by some sort of traumatic or stressful life event. Um, beyond that, I'm currently collecting data, um, and this is a, a plug for anyone who's listening and wants to be part of this super, super 10-minute brief um, survey. 
uh, the National OCD Survey. But I pulled some numbers actually this week in advance of our meeting. And um, what we found is we've had a couple hundred people participate so far. And these are just folks who have OCD, um, any adult in the United States. 75% of our sample so far has said that they believe the trauma has impacted their OCD in some way. So it could be, mm. um, as in the first stat I threw out, that it's related to the onset. It could be that um, the trauma has uh, informed you know, the content of their obsessions. It could be that the trauma has um, informed uh, the function of the compulsions, that the compulsions are used in, in some sort of trauma-related way. Mm. Uh, it could be something as simple as, the person already had OCD, but they experienced trauma and then their OCD became much more severe um, or they feel like there's sort of this cyclical nature where when their trauma is triggered, their OCD becomes triggered and vice versa. Um, and I could go on and on, but there are lots of ways that trauma and OCD can intersect that I think we're really just now starting to dig into. And that's why I think it's so important that we take this trauma-informed approach to OCD treatment. Wow. That that's a that's a huge number. Yes, that is that is a larger number than I was expecting to find. If I'm being honest. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting to see that that it's you know taking that into account that you're talking about. I, I wrote all these down that the the infecting the or impacting the onset, the content, the the, the function mm -hmm. of the compulsion, or kind of you know augmenting or kind of start, starting this like re cyclical cycle. Um, are, are any any numbers thus far on you know to to what degree people are falling into with mm -hmm. those, or or is that still too uh, ahead of ahead of things? You know, I, I, I didn't think to pull those, um, but we are collecting that too. So I can um, circle back with you once <laughs> once we've got that sorted out. Because, um, yeah, that's what I want to know. I want to be able to say, you know, X number of people with OCD feel that trauma has impacted them. And these are the most common, commonly endorsed ways that people mention. Right. And how normalizing is that to hear that 75% of people in your study have experienced trauma and trauma is is impacting and interacting with their OCD in some way shape or form right that's amazing. that's bonkers the well I actually to, to that we'll, we'll I'll, I'll add a link um, to the show notes for this but is there could you share where people can um, uh, get a hold of this study or can be a part of this study uh, just briefly before we keep going yeah, that would be fantastic. Um, anyone who wants to be a part of it can email me at nationalocdsurvey at bcm.edu, and I'll send that link. Awesome. Okay, and I'll, I'll, I will include that as well uh, on the show notes of this or on Instagram as well, so you guys can uh, all check that out. Okay, so so now that we're talking about you know seeing the, the, the prevalence of the interaction between the, those two, uh, between these two things, is what what are some ways that you would say are or what are some ways that having a trauma informed lens changes treatment? Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think that we we've, we on this podcast and on a lot of other podcasts, there's a lot of information out there about how OCD treatment tends to work. If you're coming from a CBT frame, you know we're going to be looking at. Uh, distorted thinking that, or uh, distorted thinking as it relates to the environment, the world around us, how we can challenge those things and eventually getting into exposure and response prevention, slowly and surely starting to face your fears um, and learning 
that we can get over those, learning that we can get through those, that the anxiety does not go away because of the compulsion, nor does the compulsion keep you safe. Mm -hmm. And over time, either you learn or you mm -hmm. habituate whatever verbiage you would like to use, and you find uh, relief from that. So how does trauma-informed how does the trauma-informed lens change that or augment that? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, you know, something that I've I've heard from some folks, they'll say, you know, I I've done ERP before. Um, maybe I've, they've been in treatment for a while, and you know, it, it maybe it helped for a little while, but but then I sort of came back, or maybe I, I tried and I tried and I felt like I was doing everything that I could possibly do, um, and it just felt stuck. Like it felt like there was just. Uh, a boulder in the way that I couldn't loosen and I couldn't get past. Mm. Um, and then they'll say, um, and, and yeah, I've experienced trauma and I, and I didn't talk about it during my sessions. And so, you know, I think that <clears throat> again, we're, we're still really trying to figure out just how often is this true for folks? But I think that there, in my experience, there are folks out there um, who they need an individualized approach to their ARP that also considers their trauma in order to sort of get over this, this hump in order to feel like, um, like ERP is really uh, targeting what it needs to be targeting, that they feel supported through that, you know, maybe their, their trauma or if they, if they have PTSD, um, if it's linked with their OCD, which seems to be the case in about, uh, I think we found like 85% of cases of people who have OCD and PTSD feel that there's some sort of like dynamic overlap between them. Mm -hmm. uh, that they feel like, well, I tried to do my ERP exposures, but it would trigger my trauma and I just feel so anxious and distressed and panicky that I, I couldn't sit with it. Mm. I couldn't stay in that exposure long enough to habituate or to have a corrective experience. Um, and so, you know, I infusing this kind of trauma-informed approach uh, ensures that we're, we're giving people the tools that they need uh, to really succeed in the treatment that we know is effective and can be even more effective considering these things. Right. Is there, or could you, could you give some examples of, um, uh, maybe some treatment examples or, or general examples of, uh, of, of, how, of how someone's trauma shows up with an OCD or OCD shows up in someone's trauma? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so one, one uh, person who comes to mind, uh, someone that I worked with who had really severe OCD and PTSD, and um, kind of like in the example I just described, was just having a really hard time engaging with his exposures. Mm -hmm. He just would go from zero to 10 um, and and really couldn't couldn't sit with them long enough to get any sort of benefit from them mm. um, and wasn't quite sure why and, and what was coming up for him. Yeah. Um, and as it turned out, he he had contamination OCD himself. Um, as it turned out, the um, the perpetrator of his trauma um, also had had contamination OCD. And so doing these contamination exposures mm. were triggering this trauma memory of this perpetrator in his past. And so it was kind of simultaneously triggering his OCD and his PTSD and, and escalating it to a point where he just he couldn't sit in it long enough to, to experience any sort of benefit. Yeah. Yeah, I could absolutely see how that would that having that memory come up would be a huge obstacle to wanting to progressively get closer and closer to that fear as we're as we're trying to do through ERP. Right. How does 
Uh, maybe this is a, a side note. How is it that someone finds this kind of treatment? I guess are they are they coming to to this trauma informed treatment through general OCD treatment? Are they coming to it mainly from PTSD or trauma focused treatment, and then kind of finding that they 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 are in the middle of this Venn diagram? It seems to be kind of a mix of both. Mm-hmm. Um, that you know, if if someone you know, really recognizes that that trauma and PTSD is very central for them and seems to be really driving a lot of their um, distress and impairment that they might seek out a PTSD clinician and only through that work maybe realize like, oh gosh, you know, I have OCD as well. I have obsessions about maybe something even related to the trauma. I engage in compulsions to try to cope with my trauma or, or prevent the trauma from happening again. Um, and, and I guess I really need to be addressing both things. Um, we also see the other side of the coin where somebody very much recognizes that they have OCD and they're seeking out OCD treatment. Um, and, you know, course are aware that they've had this experience with trauma in the past but maybe they themselves haven't even quite connected the dots that this trauma is is related to the symptoms that i'm having um or perhaps maybe they know there's some connection and and they've never been asked about it Mm. or they don't feel safe to to bring it up because they feel like well i come to session and i do ocd exposures and and that's all there's room for um Mm. and so i think it it can really happen both ways yeah I, I, I can also imagine there's a ton of shame attached to I, I, either either one of these, depending on the circumstances, and that shame can be a tremendous block in the way of bringing something up for fear of judgment or criticism or just sideways looks um, from their mm-hmm. therapist. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, fortunately, not not, not all therapists are are, are going to receive the information well, which is an right. incredible frustration. So. Um, <clears throat> All right, so should we, so, well, I guess, all right, so tell me a little bit about then what treatment looks like for this, all right? So if, um, so if you were just working with someone who has, you know, let's say PTSD, how would you go about treating that person? And, uh, and then we can talk a little bit about then what that, how that then differs or how that would be shifted if OCD were also in the picture. Mm, Yeah. So someone just had OCD without PTSD. Um, there are there are several um, treatments that uh, the American Psychiatric Association or Psychological Association, excuse me, um, has deemed you know the most effective. They've had the largest evidence base for PTSD treatment. Those include um, just broadly cognitive behavioral therapy and cognitive therapy. Um, but then more specifically, there's cognitive processing therapy or CPT and prolonged exposure therapy or PE. And essentially all of these fall under kind of the umbrella of CBT, as you described, you know, everything is, is a a focus on feelings, thoughts, and behaviors. Mm -hmm. Um, I like to say that CBT and PE differ in terms of where the starting point is. So Mm -hmm. PE is similar to ERP in that it's a, it's a more behavioral approach. Um, So you change the behavior, which then changes the thoughts and the feelings. Whereas cognitive processing therapy just starts on the other corner of the triangle, which is you start by changing the thoughts, which then has this domino effect on behaviors and feelings. But ultimately, they get to the same point at the end, mm-hmm. um, and they've largely been shown to be very, very similar in terms of their their outcomes. Um, and so, 
I can kind of start uh, with with prolonged exposure, PE. Um, from the name, you can tell it's an exposure-based treatment. And so it has a lot of similarities to ERP in terms of, um, you know, creating a hierarchy with your therapist, um, putting things on there that uh, are challenging for you or that you've been avoiding or that bring up a lot of anxiety for you. Um, but one of the main differences is that in PE, a central component is doing an imaginal exposure to the trauma memory. Um, mm -hmm. And so with your therapist, you would identify um, if you've experienced multiple traumatic events, which unfortunately many people have, um, you would sort of pick the one, um, start with one that has the the biggest impact on you currently. Mm. Um, so kind of unlike ERP, where you would sort of move up in an incremental fashion with PE, we actually start with the hardest one, mm -hmm. knowing that that will have sort of a trickle down effect on the other uh, experiences. Mm. Uh, and then with your therapist, uh, you essentially tell the story of what happened to you. Um, start to finish in a lot of detail in in present tense with your eyes closed if you feel comfortable doing that. Um, and you essentially do that over and over and over again until it doesn't have a grip on you anymore. Mm -hmm. And I always say to folks when we start treatment, like, I know that this is going to just sound bonkers, mm -hmm. but sometimes, oftentimes people say, I'm getting really bored telling this story, <laughs> you know, <laughs> which is right. Yeah. It's like... Yeah. It's bizarre to even think about when you think about when somebody shows up to treatment, how much they're struggling, how this memory, they do everything they can to push it out of their mind, to not think about it, to not talk about it, to avoid everything in their life that'll trigger it. And yet, when they do PE, they can get to this point where they can tell the whole story and realize that they can get through it. Mm -hmm. They realize that the memory itself is not dangerous, mm -hmm. that they're safe, um, and that they that they have a lot more power and control over that memory than it felt like they did when they started. Yeah. Yeah. It's it. it all right. I have so many questions. All right. So, <laughs> okay, so the, now this is specific. The, the example you gave just now with PE, this is a, this is for trauma only, or this is, this is a method that you would use for someone with the OCD, tra OCD PTSD overlap. Mm -hmm both so it's it is a it is a treatment for ptsd mm -hmm. um and in my work i've done um a combination erp pe approach with folks okay. um where we have where we're sort of doing both things simultaneously mm -hmm. um and i'll say too that last summer i published some outcomes it was a small sample it was just eight people mm -hmm. um and and they underwent um, PE and ERP at the same time, and they just had incredible incredible outcomes. Mm. And so you know we still need some some more robust research with larger samples and randomization and all of that. But it's the first study to show like, look, this is not only feasible to do, but this can be really effective for people. Right. So really really illustrating the the overlap of using CB or using ERP and PE or mm -hmm. showing that PE is a viable treatment um, as much as ERP has been shown historically. It would be the the, the combination of them is viable. Combination. Yeah. Okay. It's an interesting way that you describe it. So with with PE if I'm understanding correctly. So with this mm -hmm. person they're going to be you're starting by telling this story which sounds very much like scripting except you're not telling mm -hmm. a fictitious story you're telling the story right this sounds right. very this sounds very reminiscent of of kind of 
my understanding of traditional kind of trauma treatment where you're telling the story maybe in headline first and expanding on it slowly with a kind of in a calm-esque environment. Mm-hmm. So the difference, though, in this, it sounds like for this, we're starting with the details. We're starting with not just headline. We're starting with the story, expecting mm-hmm. anxiety to rise. Yes. Okay. So w- what's the what's the length of treatment for this? In, in your research, when you're doing this, is this a, 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 t- a 10-session study type of thing? So um, broadly speaking, PE in general um, is intended to be like anywhere between usually about like eight to 12 or 13 sessions. Mm-hmm. So it's actually pretty brief. Um, that's, that's done with mostly like outpatient, like once weekly sessions. There's some research uh, that's come out of Emory. That's super exciting where they had folks come in who did PE every day for two weeks straight. Um, and, and that was it. And and they had significant improvement too. And those improvements maintained over time. Mm. Um, in my study that I referenced, it was a little less clean <laughs> because, um, because it, 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 these were just, it was sort of a retrospective. We had already collected these outcomes from people. Um, this was uh, back when I was working at Rogers. So mm-hmm. they were patients in either our OCD programs or our PTSD programs who we knew had, had undergone this concurrent treatment approach. And so there wasn't as clean of like a, it was only this many sessions because a lot of those folks were in residential care. Um, but in spite of that, it, 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 it was a promising first step that it's possible to do these treatments together and it can lead to these effective outcomes. Wow. Okay. So as someone's going through um, PE, what, what are they doing with their, their emotions? What are they doing with their bodily sensations? What are they doing with the inevitable, you know, concurring uh, intrusive thoughts as they're, you know, simply telling this story? And are they telling it from something they've written or are they just kind of free form telling it? is free form okay um i will say i will say that there are ways that we can tweak things um for folks who we call it like over engagement for folks who are are just so distressed um that they're having a really hard time getting through the story mm-hmm. um folks who who can't get through the story without associating mm-hmm. there are ways that we can kind of add a little bit of distance between the person and the story to help them like have this appropriate level of engagement mm-hmm. but but essentially while the imaginal is happening um they're they're telling the story start to finish um while i'm every so often interjecting and asking for their anxiety rating mm-hmm. um and then when they finish the story we start back at the beginning okay so let's start again and they tell it for as many times as they can fit usually within about like a 30 to 35 minute time frame mm-hmm. and while that's happening, I try to be as um, as least, yeah, exactly, least invasive as possible, as quiet as possible. Um, I'll, I'll jump in and ask for more details if it feels like someone might be kind of skipping over something or avoiding something that's important. Mm-hmm. But generally speaking, I'm pretty quiet mm-hmm. until the imaginal is done. And then we spend the last half of the session processing what came up for you? Mm-hmm. Um, what sensations did you feel in your body? Did you notice anything different about the story this time when you told it versus when you told it to me yesterday? Um, and and then we also kind of notice like what are some of the 
the trauma-related beliefs or stuck points that are coming up for you, um, whether it's self-blame yeah. um, or feeling like you're a bad person, and we work through those together too. So tell me a little bit about that component, because I can imagine with someone going through this, a, a ton of things can come up in that. Um, how, how much time is spent, or I mean, you said you, the second half of that session is spent talking about uh, those uh, kind of those secondary, those, those contributing things. Mm-hmm. Is there ever a time that you completely sidestep PE and really focus in on those, the, 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 the cognition surrounding those experiences or those feelings, or are you, or are you still going through this kind of uh, this 50, 50, tell the story process, tell the story process. In, in PE, the way that it's that it's delivered in, in a standard fashion, you would you would continue with the you know exposure and then processing exposure and then processing. But what you're describing actually is is more similar to cognitive processing therapy, mm-hmm. where the entire focus of the treatment is on these beliefs that have been either developed from or impacted by trauma mm. and kind of working working through some of those. Now, I'll be honest, I, I uh, because I'm not running a randomized control trial and I can do what I think is best for the folks I'm working with, uh-huh. I often do a combination of these treatments okay. um, because I think that the content from cognitive processing therapy is just so rich and so relatable for mm-hmm. trauma survivors. And so I'll often borrow some of the handouts and worksheets and even terminology from CBT to help us really deconstruct these beliefs, figure out where they come from, um, and see if we can work through an alternative belief. Yeah. And is that, is for, for someone out there who's wanting to learn more about this or someone out there who's kind of thinking about, <coughs> excuse me, starting this, I, you know, I can imagine with, with anybody who's starting about, with starting ERP treatment for OCD, we constantly hear these stories about like, I put it off. I didn't want to do it because it sounded so terrifying and overwhelming. Um, is there, so to hear, hey, we're going to start doing treatment. And you know that thing that's the most triggering to you? Yeah, we're going to just do that, right? It, it sound, I mean, it can, it can be a huge obstacle, but it sounds like also there's a lo- there can be some flexibility in there of talking about the, you know, processing the story, telling the story. And then maybe sidestep or there's going to be some flexibility in being able to meet your needs. So it's not you needing to fit into this, this terror box that it's going to be your, your therapist hopefully is going to work with you on it to try to get you into the system, get you into the process rather. Right. Right. Yeah. And and you're absolutely right. I think um, with, with any exposure based therapy, there can be a little bit of that, like, you want me to do what? That sounds terrible, doc. I don't want to do that. It's the opposite of what I want to be doing right now. Um, And and so I, I totally get that. And I see that all the time. Um, And, you know, I, I have the benefit of seeing so many people come out the other end, Mm -hmm. the other side of this, totally transformed by it mm. and, and again saying things like i'm i'm bored this story just makes me feel bored um i've seen it happen but of course that doesn't help the person in the moment who's like well but but i'm different or my trauma might be worse than those people or this has been stuck for a decade so i don't think i'm going to have that experience right um it's just like with erp 
it's a collaborative treatment approach. And this goes as part of just trauma-informed treatment in general, that especially when we're working with folks who've experienced trauma, the last thing we need to be doing is coercing or forcing them to do things that they're not ready or willing to do. Mm. And that's such a big part yeah. that, you know, if someone is really, really struggling, you know, we're not, we're not here just to say, keep going, keep going. It doesn't matter. You know, this is good for you. I mean, that's just not, that's not how it works. And, and, you know, I don't yeah. think most of the people in our field who do exposure therapy operate that way. Um, so it's, it's definitely something collaboratively with your therapist. Um, and, you know, there are other elements of it that are more incremental, like ERP is. Mm -hmm. So for the, the in vivo exposure, um, which would be like exposures that, that people are doing kind of out in the world, that is something that you move up incrementally with. So start with sort of these like medium range exposures and kind of work yourself up. So um, there's definitely flexibility when it comes to that as well. And, you know, if someone truly has has really tried and they just feel like they're not ready to talk about their worst ever trauma, mm -hmm. um, then there are some situations. Okay, well, maybe let's start with with uh, you know one that's a little bit easier for you to talk about and work our way up. Yeah, and that that makes total sense for someone who's you know if they're experiencing a. a, a if they're experiencing completely overwhelming emotions to a traumatic event, you know, jumping into it, they, that may be the hurdle to get them in. So yeah, he hearing that, yeah, there's, there's co compassion and flexibility in the treatment method itself. So we can, you know, we can, we can walk before we run or jog before we run, however we want to verbalize it. But it sounds like the, the, the main focus would be, we're going to cut the head off the snake. We're going to go with the biggest thing first, tackle that monster. And hopefully, or in that, research is showing is trickling downward what is what is the the mechanism of change in this is it a is it a kind of a learning theory type of approach that they're learning that this story can be told and sat in in a safe way is it more of on a habituation they kind of get used to telling the story over and over again or is it some mix or some third third thing yeah, it's it's all the above. Okay. Um, and so so ERP and PE are actually grounded in the same theoretical framework. Okay. So definitely those big three with ERP, you know, um, habituating and building self-efficacy and having corrective experiences, um, you know, more along the lines of that inhibitory learning approach. Those are all at play, um, and and the mechanisms that we think are underlying PE. In addition to that, with PE there's the added piece of um, being able to uh, process the trauma mm -hmm. um, and and have that corrective experience of, of knowing that thinking about and talking about the trauma is not inherently dangerous and that you're actually capable of doing that. Um, we like to use uh, this, this metaphor in PE at the beginning. So if folks have done PE or are going to do PE, this might sound familiar to them, um, but it's a filing cabinet analogy. Mm. So essentially the idea is like, if we imagine that our, our brain is like a filing cabinet and every experience we have, um, there's a file in there. Um, so we have like these very predictable experiences like going to a restaurant. So mm -hmm. if tonight I go out for dinner, um, I could expect that uh, you know a host will seat me, they'll hand me a menu, 
give me some water. I'll put my order in. That order will come, hopefully correctly. Um, I'll eat that, pay the bill, and leave. And generally speaking, that's pretty much how it Sounds operates. Sounds like how it typically works. Yeah, typically does. Typically. And so we would have sort of like this neat little file folder where I'd pull it out and say like, okay, restaurant, boom, boom, boom. This is what I expect to happen, right? And put that away. Predictability. Exactly. But we don't have that same schema or, or predictability about trauma because trauma is inherently something that's unpredictable and maybe feels like it's not supposed to have happened. Mm. And so instead, we open that filing cabinet and these papers are spilling out all over the place and mm. it's a mess, right? And that's what it can feel like when people have PTSD and they're having these intrusive memories just popping up randomly throughout the day. Boom, mm. boom, boom. And it's sort of like whack-a-mole of trying to like, let me get rid of, you know, no, I'm at work. I can't think about my trauma right now. Or I'm with my kids or I'm, whatever. This is really distressing. Mm -hmm. And trying to push it down and push it down. Yeah. And when we do PE, what we're essentially doing is we're picking up all those papers off the ground that are mm. all out of order and all disheveled. And we're putting them in an order that makes sense. We're working through that. We're giving it a start to finish. So it's not these random flashbulb memories of different moments. It's a story that you're in control of telling start to finish as it happened to you and as you recall it. Mm. And so eventually that folder becomes less messy and less unwieldy. And it's something that we can then kind of file away. Yeah, I love that metaphor. It's beautiful. I'm, and I imagine as they're kind of organizing it, you know, if you're if the if the the job of PE is to start telling the story in a free form manner, that that story is going to change and grow in 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 detail and in scope as they're continuing to tell that story. Yes, yes. A lot of folks even they'll start off by by believing that they don't have much of a memory for things, or maybe they have gaps or, you know, and, and usually somebody's first um, try at the imaginal exposure goes pretty quickly. You know, it's like 30 seconds, right? Like, yeah. okay, I'm done. That's what happened. Right. Um, and it's pretty amazing to see as you progress in treatment, how much more detail both comes to the person and the person feels better able and willing to share because um, then a, a, a piece that we eventually get to is really zooming in on what we call hot spots mm -hmm. which are the parts of the memory that are most upsetting and we really zoom in on those with a lot of detail um, and, and you would just be amazed at, at how much detail people are able to pull once they start putting those papers in order in the file yeah um, is there, is there ever concern in, in the, in the work that you've done, is there ever concern about the development of false memories? I'm sure there's going to be someone out there who's listening to this, who's going to say, yeah, but what if I do this and I, I'm making up a trauma? I guess, have you, have you and your teams talked about that? Yes, that's a that's a, a really great point. Um, and, you know, false memories, I, you know, obviously there's there's a lot of research out there that shows that um, if people aren't careful, people who are in positions of authority, um, they can sort of um, help someone believe something that that isn't accurate. Um, mm -hmm. it's, it's really quite scary. You know, we see that a lot with um, interrogations, mm -hmm. you know, long things of that nature, people confessing to crimes they didn't commit. Um, what I'll say is that uh, if someone truly doesn't um, remember something, 
um, that I'm not going to push them to craft some sort of explanation. Mm -hmm. So it's not uncommon in PTSD or just people who've experienced trauma to have gaps in memory. Mm -hmm. Um, And in that case, when we get to that moment in the memory, then it's okay to just say, this is where my memory stops. And then it picks back up when X, Y, and Z is happening rather than trying to figure out and fill in. What else happens? Think harder. Go. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, I think over time as, as people, um, become more comfortable and make more progress in PTSD treatment, Mm -hmm. it becomes clearer to them. Is this memory actually missing? Or am I suppressing it? Am I avoiding it in some way? Because I've seen that happen quite a bit too, where somebody then can sort of reflect and say like, you know, all along I sort of um, thought that this was the case, but I didn't feel ready to say it um, mm-hmm. until now. So that can happen too. Sometimes the gaps can be filled in, but it is it is a very fine line. And so as therapists, it's on us to really not push people to fill in gaps. Yeah, and I can, and and as you're describing, it sounds like that's. Maybe you can tell me if I'm completely bonkers in this. Is that even if there are elements of that that you know are are exaggerated or or minimized or or changed in slightly different ways, that's not the purpose of this exercise. The purpose of the exercise is to tell the story and lower the emotional activation of it. So whatever that story is, it's to be able to tell it in with greater and greater ease. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I worked um, years back with a, a veteran who was a survivor of um, the 9-11 attacks. Mm. And and he um, had a, a moment in his story um, that was was highly disturbing to him. And for years, you know, had sort of convinced himself like this was this was just a dream. This part didn't actually happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it wasn't on me to try to figure out if it did or did not happen. But that part of the story evoked so, so many really intrusive images for him that it was important to work through the distress that that was causing within the context of we don't know if this actually happened or not but it's really upsetting you and you have a lot of intrusive images of it so this can be part of the treatment um while we're both on the same page that we're not necessarily saying yes or no this actually happened yeah oh i think that's beautiful to 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 acknowledge that yeah there are these images i don't know where they came from but you have them. So how do we then make space for them? Are, do you ever take a sidestep into, you know, drawing those pictures or describing those images um, in, in other ways or doing other exposure work to those images or other, mm-hmm. you know, things like acceptance and commitment therapy, or does it just keep going back to, we're going to tell the story and we're going to include the include descriptions of those mental images as well. Yeah, I think that that definitely with um, the in vivo exposures mm-hmm. that, that we can get at doing some exposures to some of those those hot spots in the memory that that maybe have sort of um, spilled out into into other uh, areas of the person's life, like if they're avoiding. Um, you know, certain smells or people mm-hmm. or, or something that comes up when they're describing the imaginal exposure, we can definitely hit on those in the in vivo exposures that we're doing. And, and ACT, of course, I mean, who doesn't love ACT and leaving that into everything, right? 
Right, right, exactly, yeah. Um, and that would be, so incorporating some of those things would be would be done in separate sessions or would be done maybe in that second half of treatment, perhaps, or second half of that session? Sometimes, Sometimes. Um, if, if there's time. Oftentimes the in vivos are done outside of session. Okay. Yeah, I was yeah. Gonna, oh yeah, is there homework assigned for this? Who doesn't love homework? <laughs> yeah, so homework for PE um, involves essentially continuing to do imaginal and in vivo exposures outside of session. Mm-hmm. So the in vivo exposures moving through the hierarchy in a very similar fashion as ERP. For the imaginal, you might say like, oh, wait a minute, how am I supposed to do the imaginal exposure without a therapist? So what we actually do is we record our PE session. Somebody can record it on their phone. Um, <laughs> yes, right, the microphone. Um, and and the person will listen to that outside of session and also be tracking their, their SUDs, their anxiety ratings as they're listening to it. So that way, you know, we're not just having, if it's a once weekly session, for example, that's not the only dose of PE that they're getting. Um. What are the success rates for this? It's incredibly successful. Mm-hmm. It's um, and as I said, PE and, and um, CPT are very similar in in that they both um, are associated with significant reductions in PTSD symptoms, um, as well as peripheral things like depression, anxiety, suicidality. If those mm-hmm. things are relevant for people, um, and and those benefits um, really have been shown to maintain over time as well. Um, one thing that I'll say that the research has shown that cognitive processing therapy tends to be a little bit better at working with um, guilt and shame, um, probably because it's sort of built right into it, kind of processing the beliefs that underlie um, those feelings. So that is something, you know, if somebody is really struggling with shame, CPT might be, you know, a, a, a different course that they might consider. Yeah, that that, that makes total sense. Um, is there someone for whom this is this is not going to fit well or not going to work well? That's a good question. Um, as I'm recalling from their early research, you know, they've they've done the the really sort of clean randomized control trial where you have all these exclusions and people have to fit into this neat box in order to be eligible and then they've done more naturalistic samples where people have struggled with a range of concerns you know substance use um, personality disorders depression whatever it might be and and they've shown that it's still effective in those populations. Mm-hmm. Um, now, just as with OCD, there are considerations that we need to make when someone has some of these, you know, co-occurring concerns, um, and PE can still be effective for them. Okay, I, I, it's my understanding that you you run a group with this as well, or a, a special interest group, or am I completely making that up? Yes. Yeah. So IOCDF um, has the trauma and PTSD and OCD special interest group, and I'm one of the co-chairs. Is this a is this a treatment that can be done in a group setting, or is this something that should mm-hmm. be done or ought to be done in a, um, a a one-on-one environment? You know, I've seen more commonly C- CPT done in a group setting. Mm-hmm. Um, Typically, the way that's um, handled is that the group will will all have, you know, the same trauma. So you might have like a CPT group for 
female survivors of sexual assault. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there's been some, some work on how that can be effective. PE would be a little bit more challenging to do in a group where I've seen people do that. Um, it's usually still a hybrid because there still needs to be that um, you kind of one-on-one um, session with the therapist, but there are ways that you could do elements of PE in a group setting. Okay. Yeah. Okay. We've, we, we've gone through a ton of information. <laughs> I really appreciate it. Is there, is there something that, uh, is, is there anything else that, that I missed or you want to go over before we get into that, that listener question? Well, I'd love to um, chat a little bit about um, what this treatment approach can look like when OCD and PTSD are comorbid, unless you want to hold that off. No, I love it. Let's do it. Okay. Okay. So I I would say, um, and and since we've been talking a lot about exposure therapy, I'll start there and then I'll sort of zoom out um, that, you know, PE and ERP, they have a lot of similarities as we've talked about kind of the um, exposure-based approach, the mechanisms that we think are responsible for, for helping people get better. But there are a couple key differences that are um, particularly important uh, when someone has OCD. Um, the biggest one that I, that I emphasize when I chat with folks about this is what do we do with reassurance? Mm. So when somebody has OCD and we come from just like a straight ERP mindset, what do we typically say to people, right? We say, sit with it, tolerate the uncertainty. Um, maybe it's going to happen, maybe it's not going to happen because reassurance exactly. is a four-letter word. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, that really kind of like maybe, maybe not. Mm-hmm. Um, but if we think about that approach and saying that to someone who's experienced a horrible trauma mm-hmm. and is voicing a fear that the trauma is going to happen again. Can you imagine saying like, maybe it will, maybe it won't. I don't know. You know, like the, it, it just, it makes my skin crawl to even think it, about it. It doesn't that. inspire confidence or empathy. No, not so much. No, no. And, and so that's one of the big um, differences. And of course, also when we, when we use that approach in ERP, we're just doing it in an empathetic way as well. So I don't mean to, to that's trash true. <laughs> but because someone has experienced trauma, it requires a little bit more of a gentle approach mm-hmm. and something that's more common in PE. Uh, and I think PTSD work in general is that um, giving reassurance isn't like an absolute no, no, you know, that, that there, there may be times, especially if someone's really struggling during their imaginal exposure where you might say um, you're safe here you're doing a great job. It's not happening to you right now. This is just a memory, right? And we wouldn't really take that approach with something that was just purely an OCD fear. Mm-hmm. Um, also, when we're, when we're building the hierarchy in PTSD, um, we might have more explicit conversations about what is actually safe and what is actually dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I might say like, well, do, do most people, you know, who don't have PTSD engage in this behavior or go to this part of town or whatever it might be. Um, and, and it's okay to be really explicit about like, this is a safe exposure to do. Now I want you to try to go do it. Mm -hmm. Um, and the reason for that is that in PTSD, um, someone's, uh, their sort of like internal alarm system has like gone haywire. It's like, it's like if the 
batteries in your um, smoke alarm were were dying and it's just like that constant beeping, right? And there isn't a fire, there isn't smoke that it's detecting, but it's just sort of going off. And so in PE, there's really a focus on helping somebody to recalibrate that internal alarm system so everything isn't setting it off, helping them to really relearn safety cues, Mm -hmm. what is safe and what is dangerous. and so there's a little bit more leniency. Uh, and so when I work with people who have OCD and PTSD, there's more leniency when it relates to trauma-related fears. So a lot of what I do, what I start with, and what I really encourage folks to do when they work with this population um, is to, to, to level set with a really thorough functional assessment of someone's symptoms mm-hmm. so that we can really piece apart okay, this feels more like a compulsion to me. This feels more like OCD versus this feels a little bit more like PTSD Um, because being able to differentiate them is going to impact your response in the moment. If somebody's seeking reassurance, if I think it's coming from an OCD place, I'm going to encourage them to sit with it. But if I think it's coming from a PTSD place, I may provide reassurance. Um, And this is really a very um, ongoing uh, and transparent process with with the client. So I want the person I'm working with to really build insight so that they they really know in the moment what is coming up for them, what's triggering for them, and what should I do with what's coming up. Um, so being able to really piece apart those things is important, as well as kind of conceptualizing how all of these things are related to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, so how does someone's trauma and PTSD relate to their OCD? Where are these points of overlap? Where are the points where they don't overlap? Um, yeah. How yeah. might the trauma be impacting the core fears that they have that that their obsession sort of manifests from? All of these sorts of things. Um, I, I encourage when someone's working with someone with OCD and PTSD. And then, and then ultimately, I guess the last piece um, that I'll say is um, really taking a, a very collaborative approach that again we never want somebody to feel coerced or pressured into something and and this kind of relates to um, what we're about to to listen to from one of your listeners Um, you know having more of a values driven um, hierarchy versus having overcorrection exposures that aren't really necessary or necessarily helpful for trauma Um, so those are kind of broadly some of the recommendations that I make when someone's working with someone with OCD and PTSD. Yeah, I love all I love all that. And I think that there's there there is a tremendous difference between the the four letter word reassurance that we do and things that we say that are reassuring. Or so I, I think I, I never heard someone they mm-hmm. I think they described them as as assurances, right? Uh, that aren't that four letter word OCD yeah. reassurances, right? But there, there are things that we can say that are encouraging or grounding yes. or and true that, you know, in this environment, you're, you're safe, right? You're safe in telling this story, right? Um, but we're not, we don't have to then address necessarily the content of the obsession or content of that trauma and speak to whether or not that's ever going to happen because you know, that's, uh, that's unimportant. Interesting here in this story, here in the thought of it, in the experience of the emotional aftermath, we can be safe in it. Yes. Yeah. Yes. 
and, and man, I, I can just hear therapists out there agonizing about how do I know? How do I know which one is going to be the right one? And through practice and patience and making mistakes. Yeah. And sometimes what do we say? Like if you, if, 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 a, if we accidentally gave a reassurance, the bad one, we go, well, you got me this time. Right. That one's for free. <laughs> right. And, and, and now, and now we know, and now we just kind of have to keep going. And I'm sure there's, you know, that's part of that discussion. But as, as you've also said, it's a two way road in this, right? You want to work with the person who's struggling and maybe they can help identify, is that question coming from the yeah. OCD side? Is that question coming from that trauma side? Meaning what is it that you're kind of needing right now? And if we're being honest, what is it that you're needing right now? Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. And, and people really can and do build that insight and can sort of like call themselves out like, nope, you know what? That was my OCD. So don't answer it. Yeah. And I've, 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 I've a ton of my clients late, late, later on as they kind of go down the road, they'll ask the question and I got, kind of go and they're like, no, nah, I already know it. I already know. Don't even say it. Like, right. Okay. Then, yes. I won't. then I won't. <laughs> So, all right, well, let's jump into that question. I'll play it here, and then we'll get into uh, addressing some of those points. Sounds great. Hey, my name is JD. I have OCD. I was diagnosed in July of this year, uh, which I was really, like, weirdly glad about because it just made so many things make sense. Um, But it was also kind of sad in a way because... I've been in therapy for like 15 years, um, on and off, but mostly on, and no one ever even mentioned OCD to me. I actually saw it on, I saw a TikTok about, um, relationship OCD, and I was like, oh my gosh, that's what I've been experiencing for the last however long, and then I brought it up to my therapist she referred me to a psychiatrist and I got diagnosed started learning about OCD started learning about all of the other ways that I interact with the world that are OCD related and it's been a very bittersweet journey so far um because I do wish that there had been more help available to me or I wish that clinicians had more training in identifying OCD um, than they seem to have. Not there's anything wrong with them, but you know what I'm saying. So anyways, okay, I have two things. One is just like an outright question and one is a question slash uh, suggestion for future content if you're interested. I'll start with the suggestion because I think it's simpler to talk about. Okay, so I wonder what you think about or what and or what the OCD world is saying about OCD being a form of neurodivergence Um, because I've read a couple things about it and I really think like intuitively or I guess anecdotally just from my own life that feels like a thing to me in the sense that I have always felt like my brain dealt with sensory input in all forms um, differently than most of the people in my life. And I always, like, especially when I got diagnosed with OCD, I felt like, oh my God, 
it finally makes sense to me the way that my brain interacts with the world around me. So I wonder what you think about that. Also, I know that like OCD, like brain scans of OCD brains are different than brain scans of non-OCD brains. So I'm just wondering what you think about that, what the word is right now. And it would be really, really cool to hear from a neuroscientist um, who is doing OCD stuff with the brain. But the podcast is your oyster, so do what you will. Okay, secondly, sorry, this is probably going to be longer, but you said you like to hear our voices, so ask and you shall receive. So I have um, a couple different themes that I struggle with, but one in particular is uh, relationship OCD, and I have a lot of intrusive thoughts during and around sex and just physical intimacy in general but during sex obviously like arousal is higher so yeah I also have been sexually assaulted and have experienced sustained sexual abuse in the past things are safe and good now but you know still have like residual things in my body and in my brain that react to sex now, I did EMDR therapy. I no longer meet the criteria f- um, for PTSD, which is really good. It helped me a lot with flashbacks during sex and things like that, which is super cool. Um, however, so when I start having uh, avoidance compulsions, like I don't want to have sex. I just oftentimes wish sex didn't even exist just so that I didn't have to deal with some of the things that I deal with during and around it. So, for example, um, when I'm avoiding, that's obviously a compulsion, I'm avoiding sex. And I think, okay, how am I going to ERP this, right? It doesn't feel like just pushing through sex when I feel like I'm going to have like a panic attack is a good option. Uh, based on the trauma that I've been through. So I'm wondering how, like I'm in a clinical social work program right now that is all about trauma-informed care. So I'm wondering how ERP can be trauma-informed when it's something like that, when the ERPs intersect with an actual like traumatic event that someone's been through. Um, Do you think that there are ways to like work up to kind of working through anxiety during sex like my partner and I talked about just like laying together and and touching in a way that doesn't lead to sex even though I'm anxious to try to you know expose myself to it without feeling like I'm being abused again because that's what it ends up feeling like if I try to do things when I don't want to do them it just starts feeling like you know my brain will start being like are you sure you're even into this you don't even want to do this and then that's just part of the time but then sometimes it's like you know just intrusive feelings of disgust or intrusive thoughts about my partner's appearance um and it's a little it's a little bit murky there where I'm like okay that seems like something I could expose myself 
for or like do ERPs for those types of thoughts but what about how that intersects with actual traumatic events related to sex I know I just keep repeating the same thing so yeah um, I hope that that makes sense sorry this is so long and thank you so much for what you do I really really love the podcast and uh, yeah so bye all right, Jody, thank you so much for sharing that question. And there's a lot of information in there, and I just want to address kind of the first half of that, and we can kind of go over that really briefly, um, and then jump into the impact of, uh, of, of the second half and how kind of trauma is, is um, kind of working through that. So, um, so you, you asked the question about neurodivergence, and uh, I just want to address that. So I did a previous podcast episode with uh, with Jeremy Schumann. That's going to be episode 15757. And that's all about neurodivergency within or neurodivergent treatment for OCD and anxiety spectrum disorder. So that might be worth listening to. Um, Dr. Schumann has uh, is 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 championing the idea that uh, OCD treatment can be or should be seen in a neurodivergent light um, as as a lot of folks kind of describe you know higher sensitivity to certain things or different experiences than the average than the average person perhaps so taking into account uh, uh, oneself in a neurodivergent way can help to inform what treatment can look like so I really encourage you to check that out but um, we we are here also to talk about how to address that second piece. And, you know, we, we've been talking a lot of, the entire focus of today's episode has been about trauma and how to treat someone who has this overlap between trauma and OCD, and that's exactly what you're talking about. So um, I, I will, I'll open the gate uh, I, uh, for, uh, for Dr. Pinciati to talk about it. Um, and, uh, and we'll just jump into it and see what, what we might do in this specific case. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for posing this question. Um, it's, it's something that's very common and, and I can tell uh, in, in the question itself, there were already some answers. So it's clear mm-hmm. that, that you've spent a lot of time thinking about this and, and, you know, have a pretty good understanding of it already. Um, I'll kind of start with, with a what not to do. Um, so what would be a kind of a non trauma informed approach um, would be to, kind of conceptualize, you know, any avoidance, any anxiety, uh, any anxiety related avoidance, I should say is bad. So you have to do the thing that you're avoiding and just kind of sit with that discomfort. Um, Mm -hmm. this would mean, you know, encouraging someone to, to have sex that they don't want to have or don't feel ready to have. Um, and, you know, doing kind of maybe overcorrection exposures involving, Mm -hmm gosh, I don't know, maybe exposing to, to really graphic sexual content um, that the person isn't necessarily um, ready or willing or interested in, in being exposed to. So those would be, um, and, and I hope and don't think that someone out there would take that approach, but just to sort of illustrate um, how obvious it really is when we sort of pick it apart that, well, yeah, of course, we would, we would never want to coerce anyone um, into being physically intimate with anyone um and particularly particularly in this case when you know someone has described uh an extensive history of sexual abuse um Mm -hmm. 
that it, it doesn't make sense to just say, well, just because you're avoiding this thing, we'll go and do that. And that's going to solve all of your problems. Um, so I would say in this case, I think a big piece would be, um, and it sounds like like this is this has already been done a little bit with the EMDR, um, you know, processing the impact of the trauma, um, the impact that this trauma has had on OCD symptoms. It sounds like there's quite a bit of a connection with these kind of relationship concerns, um, these physiological reactions, the kind of the panic attacks and, and whatever sort of physiological reactions come up um, when being intimate. Um, and then really, what is the impact that the trauma has had on your beliefs, your beliefs about yourself, about other people, about the world? Um, do you, you know, related to trust, do you feel like you can trust yourself or trust others? Do you feel safe in the presence of others? Do you feel like you are in control of, of your, um, you know, the situations that you find yourselves, yourself in? Um, how do you kind of relate to yourself um, in terms of your, your esteem and your self-confidence and self-worth? Um, these are all things that can often be impacted by trauma. Um, either that someone, you know, had um, kind of a, a pretty positive view of themselves in the world and then the trauma happened and it sort of turned things upside down. Um, or it might be someone who, who always sort of um, was disillusioned uh, perhaps from experiences that, that they had or environments that they grew up in and the trauma came along and just sort of served as a, see, I told you so, you can't trust people. Um, mm. People will, will abuse their power, so on and so forth. Um, so really kind of processing the impact on those beliefs um, and trying to you know, reflect on, aside from those physiological reactions that come up uh, when being intimate, what else might be coming up that's associated with those feelings? Is there a thought or a feeling um, that's connected that maybe doesn't feel as loud um, or as, as at the forefront as the panic attack, but maybe when we really kind of piece it apart, we can determine, well, there's a thought in this moment that I'm not safe. Or, you know, is this a person I can trust? Um, really working to identify what these underlying core fears are. In CPT, we use the term stuck points. I really like that term, too. Um, mm. What's kind of underlying uh, the fear, the anxiety, the avoidance, and how can we sort of challenge and work through that? Um and really sort of relearn these safety cues that I was talking about earlier. So in this case, um, you know, you, you, you're, you're spot on that one approach would be um, starting with really low level um, uh, ways of being intimate with someone. Um, and, and this could be, I mean, intimacy is, is usually thought of in, a, in, you know, more of a sexual way, but it really can be anything sitting with someone on the couch um sharing something personal um even just holding their hand and sort of moving your way up as you feel comfortable doing so um into doing things that again you feel ready to do um and all along kind of checking in with yourself when that anxiety comes up when those urges to avoid come up is this something i truly don't want or is this my fear and anxiety because if you truly don't want to be intimate in this moment, then don't be intimate in this moment, right? Don't do it. Don't do right. it. 
Yeah, right. don't do it. You have to move at a pace that feels like you're in control. It's such a big part of of working with trauma is that you are in control. I understand that that control and that power was taken from you mm-hmm. and you endured what you endured, but that's not the case anymore. That in this therapy, you and I are on the same team. We're working through this together. You're never going to be forced to do something that you're not ready to do. Um I think also, you know, I would, um, I would start to really kind of process, um, these, these beliefs and the way things have been linked, you know, there, there might be this link of, um, being intimate with someone, um, is, feels very similar to the sexual abuse. So kind of working through, Mm -hmm. okay, how can we actually separate these things? How are these experiences different, both in terms of your role in them? And the other person's role in them. Right. Um, and having really honest and transparent conversations with your partner about where your boundaries are and when you want to stop and what that looks like. Right. So whether that's like a safe word or, mm-hmm. or just, you know, looking towards um, nonverbals or whatever it might be, just making sure that that partner, and it sounds like they are, is very much mm-hmm. on the same page about like we're doing this together. Yeah, and I imagine that through all of this, that maybe not through all of the treatment, but you know, you're, you, for for this indi- for this individual, the partner is going to be really involved with treatment and knowing what we're, what you all are doing, yeah. how you're going through it, the trajectory of treatment, the purpose of each and every step, and that they need to be on board. That you know, I- intimacy leading to sex or not leading. I mean, it sounds like yeah. she, th- th- she wants eventually to lead to sexual intimacy, mm-hmm. but intimacy leading to sex is going to happen on her timeline. And, you know, he's got to be on board with that. He's there. The language of pushing or encouraging or mm-hmm. asking to go further than she's ready is going to be, is going to be pulled out. And that, that, you know, having that, 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 that safe word, I love the idea of having that safe word that if it feels like it's too much, being able to develop trust mm-hmm. that this person is going to halt when that is said. And also, I, be, I bet or I imagine that each and every step as they're moving up toward, you know, from very low level intimacy, I love that example of just kind of sitting next to each other, just sitting mm-hmm. and then maybe holding hands. But even to what degree does, you know, asking permission like verbally asking permission, verbally having confirmation that this is this step is okay, as you're working up towards trust. Right. Would that be a a, a part of this? Yeah, I think I think it definitely can, and and I think that that would be a really wonderful way to weave in this corrective experience. That maybe there's this belief that's been ingrained that you don't have control over sex, that sex is something that's done to you, um, whether mm-hmm. you want it to or not. And so weaving in this kind of asking permission, asking consent, um, sort of gives someone that experience of, you know, I deserve to have my feelings and my needs listened to uh, and account mm. for, and really like giving somebody giving their mind and their body this very loving and trusting corrective experience with what intimacy looks like. Yeah. So to that, I want to ask you about that. Building that sense of empowerment, that, that, that belief, and I might be reading into this person, but I can imagine there's someone out there who's experiencing this, that if this person is feeling that their power has been taken away, 
mm-hmm. and that perhaps they are powerless in a situation. You know, it, it can be that kind of a cart before the horse thing to say, I'm going to be fully empowered before I go and do, right? I think a lot of times, I mean, a lot of times with anxiety, we don't feel confident to do something mm-hmm. and then we go do it. We start doing it and we develop confidence through it. Mm-hmm. For this case, how do, how does that work of feeling like they have agency again before jumping in? Is is that work done on the like heavily on the front end of treatment, working on agency, working on self worth, etc., and then get into exposures, or are those kind of done, you know, concurrently mm-hmm. and through building trust in oneself and one's partner as they're doing those kind of uh, you know incremental steps. I would say that that most commonly it's it's the latter um, that, okay. that it sort of happens at the same time. Now, of course, you know, the, the whole point of a lot of what we're talking about is that there is no one way to, to treat um, trauma, to treat OCD. And so, you know, on a case by case basis, there might be a situation where we do feel like we need to sort of build something up before we get started. Um, but I think really when it comes to something that's so ingrained that it feels like it just lives in our body um that the best way to really target that is to is to do the thing and and let that self-efficacy come along with it um and you know what maybe maybe the exposure um is is planned ahead of time that you know we're going Uh, to start doing x y and z physical physically intimate thing and then i'm going to tell you to stop and then you're going to stop um, and maybe that's something that's determined ahead of time, right? So that person starts to have the experience of a even being able to voice that, which can be really challenging for people who've experienced abuse, and b to have someone who's showing them that they can trust that they'll listen to it, and that my words have power. Yes. Yeah. yeah. The the um, inhibitory learning form or the inhibitory learning model. I'm sure you're familiar with that form. I, I love the latter half of it. Um, and for anybody who's not um, who's not familiar with it, the, the first half really just describes what the you know what the expo- what's the thing you're about to do, what's the exposure you're going to do, what's the compulsion, the safety mechanism, or the safety behavior that you're going to try to pull out of it, and what you what the feared outcome is. And then the latter half is to say, now that you did the thing, what did you learn about yourself? Mm-hmm. What did you learn about the situation? How did your actual experience differ from that feared ex- that that feared anticipated outcome? Um, and it sounds like a lot of that processing is going to be important in this to say, all right, you did this, you you did X that you agreed on. You, there was that voice in your head that, that was still, or maybe that's that trauma voice that says mm-hmm. this terrible thing is going to happen because that thing has happened, et cetera. Great. How, what did you notice? How was this different? What were the elements that were different? What did you do that contributed to a different thing? What did they do that contributed to a different thing? And then what can you do differently? What, what's the next step in that now that you've learned that this can be safe? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that that's, that's really the, the big part, right? You know, someone who's doing this exposure, they might not feel like their anxiety is habituating in this moment. Um, because it's so, as I said, it's so ingrained. It feels like it, it just sort of lives inside them, this kind of physiological response to intimacy that the goal isn't 
well, you know, you have to sit in this exposure until your anxiety cuts in half because that might not happen. You know, right. hopefully over time, they might find that, that their anxiety doesn't quite get as high, doesn't peak as high mm-hmm. as they do this more. But really where you're going to see the, the change is exactly what you described of just having experience after experience after experience of feeling empowered, feeling heard and feeling like you have more control over your body um, than, than your trauma led you to believe. Right. Right. So, I mean, all, all of this sounds like it's a slow and steady process, but it's, you know, it's going to go at, go at your pace. So this could be a surprisingly quick treatment for this person. I could imagine it could also be a very long treatment for this person, but you know, there is no expectation. I mean, I, when I, when I asked that question very early on in our set, in our session, in our conversation today, I've, I'm still at work. I don't know about you, but, um, when, um, when I was like, how, how long was the treatment in your research? I think a lot of people read these studies and they go, oh, well, treatment ought to be 10 sessions. And then they hit session 10 and they go, well, I'm not fixed yet. I must be more broken than everybody else mm-hmm. because these people got better after 10 sessions. Those, oftentimes those research studies are done under ideal conditions. Yes. And the rest of us don't live under ideal conditions and things take the time that they take. Yes, that's, that's absolutely right. And, and, and I'll say for anyone who, who's, you know, having that reaction of, wow, I must be too broken to benefit from this because there's no way I could get better in 10 sessions. Um, you know, that, that study that I referenced where we pulled the outcomes of people who did PE and ERP, a lot of those patients were people that I worked with um, and they were in our care for months um, mm-hmm. and that's okay. It's mm-hmm. okay. Um, it isn't, it isn't a race. I think, I think the biggest thing that, you know, us CBT folks want to make clear is that just because you've experienced trauma, just because you have OCD doesn't mean that you necessarily have to be stuck in treatment for your entire life. Right. Right. Like there is, there can be a light at the end of the tunnel that you move towards. You aren't damaged in a way that, that you can never kind of independently heal. Um, but, but you're right. There is no one size fits all for this. Right. And that there is, is that, but there is light at the end of the tunnel. There is, in this case, there is sexual intimacy that can be had through this after this. And, you know, it's not that you're then stuck in this cycle of, I don't know, physical celibacy for the rest of your life or avoidance or terror or, you know, rehashing of the trauma every single time. Mm -hmm. It's but a slow and steady so steady wins the race, I suppose. I'm 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 looking at the time. I know we've we've both got to get out of here. Um, is there, in the sake of time, is there anything else that you'd want to add? Um, I know that I, I I'm also looking over my notes and realize we didn't really even talk about or address the points about um, you know those thoughts about the partner's appearance or the feelings of disgust, and that mm-hmm. could be a whole separate conversation. And that you know that 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 certainly may be one of those things that's tied into the trauma. Mm-hmm. I, I think I remember that it, it sounded like it was also related to kind of an ROCD component. So it might be more uh, better addressed through just traditional ROCD treatment, mm-hmm. but I, I know we didn't get through, get to that. So listener, I'm so sorry, but um, you know, we, we, there's, there's a lot of time and a lot of question, a lot of chatting with we could do, but is there anything else, um, Dr. Pinziati that you'd want to add here at the end, um, either about trauma or for this individual? 
Yeah, I, I think that the biggest piece that that I that I want to end with is um, both for this person and, and broadly for anyone listening that, you know, when you've experienced trauma and you have OCD and and you feel like those things are related, that it might make you feel um, different uh, or or that that something won't help you um, that, you know, your your peers who have OCD, maybe it feels like. Um, gosh, I wish that that it was that simple, quote unquote, for me too. Um, and there really is hope. You know, there's there are treatments. There's PE. There's CPT. There's just even taking a more trauma informed approach to ERP. Um, there are so many different ways uh, that people can work through these experiences and recover from them. And we can never erase them. Erase what happened to someone, but we can lessen its grip on the person's mm-hmm. life. Um, and I've seen it happen so many times. And it's what I love about this work so much is I get to see people, as I said, come out the other side um, so much better living the lives that they have been wanting to live. And so I just would encourage folks to to not give up, um, to find you know the, the therapist that's a good fit for you that can help you work through all of these things um, at the same time. If you're struggling to find a therapist who can who can do this work with OCD and PTSD, I have a directory that I created actually um, on my website. Um, it's cmpinciati.com, um, which I can give that to you too if you if you want to. Um, I'll include that. that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I created a directory too that's that's by states and even some folks outside of the United States uh, who specialize in OCD and PTSD. Um, so just know that there's. There are folks out there that can help. There's research that's being done to, mm-hmm. to help us understand this better. And um, and there's a light at the end of the tunnel. I love that. Well, thank you so much. Um, well, I'll, I'll add that that website uh, to the episode page so folks can go um, find more about you and more about your research um, there. So why don't I let you go here? If um, I, I know I always ask this to everybody, but if, if other listeners out there have questions about this sort of treatment, um, would you be willing to jump back on at some point, you know, if, if we can ever figure out our schedules to work together again? Um, folks don't even know the, how many how how difficult this was to get us together but we did it um but would you be willing to come back on to share some ideas absolutely and and, and hopefully going forward I'll, i will not continue to, to catch all of these bugs that make me so sick that has made it so challenging for us to meet but um yes i'd same. love to be back so same yes. um <laughs> well yes all right well awesome well thank you so much for your time and have a good day yeah you too thank you Thank you all so much for making it through that episode. Uh, uh, If you have further questions about trauma-informed treatment for OCD or have any questions specific to Dr. Pinciotti, go over to fearcastpodcast.com and send me an email that way or go over to fearcastpodcast uh, at Instagram and you can send me a message over there. And uh, if uh, if I get any follow-up questions, I'll wrangle in Dr. Pinciotti and uh, I'll have her uh, discuss uh, discuss those questions. So uh, if you have a moment, check out that survey. Again, that link will be at, uh, at the episode page at fearcastpodcast.com, or I'll also attach that to the, uh, to the uh, Instagram page. So uh, please remember, everybody, that the FearCast is not substitute for psychotherapy. If you need a little bit of help in your recovery, go over to fearcastpodcast.com and click on the Find Help link, and there's going to be some information for you there that hopefully should point you in the right direction. 
So until next time, everybody, take a risk, challenge yourself, and don't take your brain too seriously. 